0: Hello, and welcome to the fifth episode of our Fundamental Principles of Communist Production and Distribution by the Group of International Communists Reading Group series. Today is Sunday the 1st of July 2021, and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. We tackle Chapter 4, Progress in the Formulation of the Problem. This week, I got the new patrons Emra and Omar Aga to thank. If you'd like to join in the reading group, extra bonus patron-only episodes, or creating Discord over on the Discord server, head on over to Patreon and throw me a few commie dollar. Okay, let's hit it. Hello everybody and welcome to the fifth session of our Fundamental Principles of Communist Production and Distribution reading group series. Today we're on to Chapter 4. Progress in the Formulation of the Problem. So we've got a, it's quite a a medium to long chapter today. We'll see how we get on and see if we can get through it all. So I'm looking for somebody to do a wee bit of reading. Who wants to take the first bit? Simon. Progress in the Formulation of the Problem. Communism
1: as a Negative System. After this preliminary orientation on our topic, in which we've identified as characteristics of communist operational life, the self-management by the operational organisation, with an exact relationship from producer to product based on working time accounting, it is important to examine how the Bolsheviks developed their dream image of production without a unit of account. It should be noted, however, that this was by no means a specific Bolshevik view, but dominated the entire working class, from the social democrats to the anarchists. Admittedly, they did not all talk openly about it, nor did it lead to a direct struggle against the position. In truth, this means that the workers' movement was not yet ready. Part of the English Labour movement is an exception, as English trade unionists make attempts before 1914 in the direction of so-called Guild Socialism. Judging by its name, it gives the impression that England, which had always lagged far behind in socialist theory, went far beyond the mainland movement on these issues. However, The explanation for the case lies in the fact that the English trade unions were already stuck before 1914 in their task of improving working conditions. They took no further steps and had to look for other means. Certainly, no one will expect English trade unionists to launch a revolutionary attack on the capitalist system. Guild socialism is, therefore, nothing more than the English name for the cooperation of capital and labour, as it is understood here in the country under worker participation. No matter how ridiculous it may be in retrospect, it is in any case explainable that it was believed that communism could be achieved without a unit of account. It was assumed that capitalism itself had to develop into such a state. And those who immediately saw the stupidity of such a view thought it completely superfluous to get lost in utopias. Because these things would of course find their solution by themselves. In fact, there is always a solution by itself. But since we know that the abolition of private ownership of the means of production, the transformation of the means of production into common ownership does not necessarily lead to communism, we believe that we cannot ignore this problem.
0: Let's just say, well done to Yannick Pell for throwing shade on the British Labour movement. You could make these critiques he has of the English Labour movement and they would still be 100% valid today. So he's going to, like this is nearly the first time in the book he's going to really start broadening the scope of critique away from just Bolshevism's, well, I don't know, he has a little bit before on uh, the Social Democrats in Germany, but certainly to to the anarchists, it's kind of nearly like the first time he's mentioned here. And this idea of guild socialism is uh, interesting because we're going to be talking in depth about the concept of the guild when we get on later. Uh, Simon, do you want to keep going?
1: For those Marxists who consider any further investigation of the laws of movement of communist operational life superfluous, who see in such an investigation only the resurrection of a refuted position, a relapse into utopian socialism, we recall the great scientific deed of Marx and Engels, who on the contrary led communism from utopia to science. The realization of communism does not depend on benevolent people who will realize a predetermined plan, who have worked out a certain production system in which all the evils of capitalism are eliminated. It must develop with natural necessity from the laws of movement of capital. Capitalism digs its own grave. The accumulation of capital, the condition of existence of the present system is at the same time the precondition of its dying. The accumulation of capital means only the accumulation of the misery of the working class, which confronts us with the choice of abolishing the laws of movement of the production of commodities, of the profitability of capital, by realising communism or sinking into barbarism. The impoverishment of the masses is nothing more than an expression of the fact that productive social forces have come into conflict with property relations, so they can no longer be applied within the framework of private property. The productive forces thus go beyond the ownership through which the means of production are transferred into common ownership. Then communism will be there. So why bother to examine the laws of movement of communist production? So why bother to examine the laws of movement of communist production? Why supplement the existing utopias with another one? Why should Marxism develop from science to utopia? But the propaganda demanded a more detailed explanation of the coming new order. The bourgeois critics did not stop asking again and again what the new order would look like so the theorists were forced to lift some of the mysterious veils. With a contemptuous shrug, they explained that communism was crystal clear for them. Marx taught it. The money disappears in communist production. And beyond that, he had read the work itself. Although it is a value-forming element cannot have any value itself, that therefore also, a given quantity of work cannot have a value expressed in its price in its equivalence with a given quantity of money. Accordingly, Kautsky explained, value is the historical category that applies only to the production of commodities. This would also abolish the prices of products, not to mention the market. When asked what the communist operational life would look like, the Marxist economists were able to give a very satisfactory answer to their feelings. However, this was not, in fact, an answer. They always said what it would not be like. No money, no value, no market, no price.
0: Okay. Thanks very much for that, Simon. So we're getting towards this idea of like communism as, an, as a negative idea. So it's the different strands of, you know, the communist, radical, revolutionary left had their idea of communism or socialism in in the negative, saying that like it wouldn't have value production, it wouldn't have money, it wouldn't have, what other ones do we have here? No market, no price, no value, no money. And this kind of fear of being led down this kind of utopian path, I think that Marx was most afraid of. As far as I know, because of the experience of the Owenites, Owen was a kind of proto communist English rich benevolent guy who set up essentially communes based on, I think, based on, I think based on labor money. I'd, I'd have to go and check that again. But yeah, so we're going to kind of juxtapose this negative idea versus a positive idea soon because the history of of the socialist, communist, anarchist movements was that their fear of the, you know, theorizing of a utopia in the abstract, basically that led to people not having any kind of idea of what they were doing. In reality, what it ended up doing is the reintroduction of a lot of these capitalist forms in a way that people, some people call state capitalism, this book calls state capitalism, but at least brought back many facets of capitalist value form functions Anybody got anything to say here? Pilto? Hey,
2: just an observation that I, I, we're getting closer and closer to a working definition of Marxism that, 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 that I grew up with. That was, I think, taught to me at school, and GCSE and A level, which is of a, a very effective critique of capitalism, but that doesn't put forward an alternative because it just assumes that capitalism will collapse and communism will magically appear and solve all of our problems. And I think for most of my life, that that's been my understanding of, of of Marxism and communism in general is that is just that, this constant sort of believing that communism would just emerge of its own accord. And it's, it's interesting to see how some of that that some of that interpretation was imposed, and some of it was also developed by the communists themselves.
0: Yeah, like, uh, and I think I've read some of the stuff about the Owenites, and like, literally, it was at the case where Owen and and, and those guys had their communes where they would plan like and you have to get up at this time and you know that the the young would do this thing and the older people would do this thing and then you would function we would do this between the hours of nine and eleven and this between the hours of five and eight in the evening and it was all you know along the lines of Muir's utopia but yeah we, we we see this idea of Marxism as critique only and it's not as kind of like making positive contributions like I, I like this line here, we recall the great scientific deed of Marx and Engels who on the contrary led communism from utopia to science. We're getting towards this idea of the critique of the bourgeois critics of von Mises and Max Weber. And we're going to see how they had a very correct theoretical understanding above the understanding of the communist radicals. There's an interesting quote here from Kautsky. Kautsky says, value is a historical category that applies only to the production of commodities. This would also abolish the prices of products, not to mention the market. The prices of products, that doesn't chime with what Marx was talking about in the Robinson critique. So that's a bit unusual that he would say that. Like that's in the first hundred pages of Capital. I think that kind of goes kind of square against stuff that's right there, obviously in the first kind of 100 pages. And certainly Kautsky would have been aware of the critique of the God Programme. Okay, so anybody want to read then from the bourgeois writer, Kielce?
2: The bourgeois writer, Eric Horn, who would very much like to know what it will be like, therefore characterises communism as a negative system. His curiosity was awakened because he concluded that he might also be a communist. He has no objection at all to the abolition of private ownership, of the means of production. He is, if necessary, in favor of leaving them to common ownership. But that in no way meant the abolition of the capitalist mode of production. The general cartel of Hilferding. Rudolf Hilferding deserves the dubious honor of having given the complacent superficiality of the negative system a theoretical basis he solved the difficulties in a surprisingly simple way. So simple that a child can understand the movement of the new production system. Hilferding pointed out that the money capital destroys itself in the course of the capitalist development because the ever stronger concentration of enterprises and industries makes money and the clearing between the individual enterprises redundant, in his opinion. The trusts create huge industrial hubs in which transport, coal and iron mines, steel mills, etc and even the distribution of the final product to consumers are organized, managed, and controlled in one hand. In this huge apparatus, the products for continuous processing go from one company to another without being sold every time because the trust does not sell anything to itself. Within the trust, the money movement, according to Hilferding, has stopped. Yes, the products in the individual companies no longer even have a price. Within its production cycle, The trust has switched over to the productions of good in kind. In order to regulate the production within the trust, the top trust management decides in which plant and how many new means of production are added and what and how much is produced in the individual plants. This is an amazingly simple solution for communist economic life. The more capital is organised in trusts, the more capital itself destroys money, the greater the extent to which society goes to the account in kind. After all, it would theoretically turn out that the entire world production is an awesome monster trust in which production and distribution are deliberately regulated but on a capitalist basis. This means that the owners of the monster trust let the entire apparatus work for their private purposes. But here the money has disappeared. Money is no longer there. Prices and the market do not exist. The trust leaders would set prices for the distribution of consumer goods to the workers, but these would in no way be related to the value. They would have been set arbitrarily according to the standards set by the gentleman. Hilfording tells the following about this monster trust, as he calls it, the general cartel. All capitalist production is consciously regulated by an authority that determines the extent of production in all spheres. Then the price fixing becomes purely nominal here arbitrary at GIC, and means only the distribution of the total product to the cartel magnates on the one hand, to the mass of all the other members of society on the other hand. The price is then not the result of a factual relationship that people have entered into, but merely of a calculated way of allocating things from people to people. Money does not matter then. It can disappear completely because this is about the allocation of things and not of values. With the anarchy of production, the material appearance disappears. The value of the commodities disappears, and thus money disappears. The cartel distributes the product. The objective production elements have been produced again and used for new production. Of the new production, one part is distributed to the working class and the intellectuals. The other part falls to the cartel for any use. It is the consciously regulated society in antagonistic form. But this antagonism is an antagonism of distribution. The distribution itself is consciously regulated, and thus the need for money is over. The financial capital in its completion is detached from the breeding ground in which it was created. The circulation of money has become unnecessary. The restless circulation of money has reached its goal. The regulated society and the perpetual mobile of circulation finds its rest. Okay. There's quite a lot of stuff here. All utter bullshit. A lot of bullshit
0: going on here. Yeah, <laughs> I do very much have this, under, this line here underlined in my, in my copy, which I think is a huge relevance for us today to all elements of kind of left politics, pretty much. It is the consciously regulated society in antagonistic form. But this antagonism is an antagonism of distribution. The distribution itself is consciously regulated and thus the need for money is over. I, something I come back to all again and again on the podcast, but like when somebody starts talking about distribution mainly as a, like the problem with capitalism, you got to check your wallet. You know, it's literally it's changing the focus at the point of exploitation at production to the problem of distribution. And not only does does this kind of Hilferdingian approach do that, but if you think about it, it really guts the revolutionary behavior of the working class themselves. It says the capitalist system is itself the revolution. Like it's not saying that this is a revolutionary battle between the proletariat and the, the owners, the capitalist class, but it's saying, oh, look, we should just let this, you know, capitalist beast work its logic, work its logic, work its logic. And then the next thing you know, lads, there'll be communism. Anybody have anything to say about this big section here? Alex? Just, I
3: haven't how, how do Walmart? deal with this problem because there you've got like an, an utterly enormous organization i just checked it's like turnovers like some stupid like 600 billion a year do they like have money to you know deal with all the various departments within walmart or you know do they do that with, with that money because it, it, it's kind of a similar problem
0: it's, yeah, it's interesting you sh- you should say that. Like, because I know the book uh, the the yeah. uh, Walmart Republic. They yeah, make the yeah, case. Trying to remember. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they make the case in there that Walmart specifically do it on based on plans. Yes. Yeah, and that is a that I I think some of the difficulties that would have been around at the time with planning without a unit of account can be algorithmically
3: yeah
0: solved today. Yes. Okay, so some of that problem I think has been eliminated. But the other thing I would say as well is that they have. I, I'm not exactly sure, like, because in that book they don't really get into the nitty gritty. I get the I, I get the feeling that it's it's much more of a kind of a cybernetic approach, where the things are like you know just in time delivery, and I, I think they may they may get into essentially managing the production of their producers at some level, like yeah. the Walmart uh, and the say the people who make do the meat or do do the tins of beans or whatever, that they're kind of integrated uh, at the hip and that a lot of, like, production signals are coming directly from Walmart and they integrate them into their system. So how much are getting rid of money? I don't know. Is I'd be sceptical, to be honest. Yeah, um,
3: I, I suppose, as well, they, like, they don't have the problem of, like, many stage processes. You know, they tend to, like, buy, produce things from from people, I mean, who they may micromanage, but it's not like... I suppose they don't have the problem of owning a mine, digging out or turning that into steel, turning that into a railway, turning that into you know, and so on and so forth. Yeah. So like, maybe, maybe they have a simpler problem.
0: Yeah, I think it's a much simpler problem. Like it's the problem of the distribution center, as yeah. opposed to the entire productive apparatus. I, I think you can do you can do planning based on physical quantities now that you couldn't at the time, that you sure. you can technically do with computers. Oh, there was something I was going to say. Okay, yeah, uh,
4: fellow Jitzer Herman. I don't think that Walmart is doing a planning in kind. So as long as they calculate a profit, they have to calculate in prices. And even if they don't pay with money within the organization, they book it in money form.
0: Yeah, that that's exactly correct. Yeah. So like they are maybe internally like a planned system, but they're externally regulated by the market. And they do it at profit. If you think about it, you're working, say, in a small scale, you're working in a, you know, a McDonald's or something. Like when I'm working on the, say, I'm working on the fast fry machine or something. And somebody says, can I have the fries? And I pass them to them. Like when I pass them to them, I don't ask that worker to give me £1.20 for for the fries. That you have these internal, like non-market transactions all the time in every single business but they're always externally uh, interacting with the outside in things that aren't in kind. While in kind can be internal, the externally is not in kind. Kielce?
2: I'd argue that even in, internally, they're probably, being, they're probably being accounted for at, at some point. It's just not at the point of transfer. It'll be aggregated on a quarterly or annual basis. And, and I think this, it's a bullshit argument to say that, 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 that any corporation can function in the way that he describes certainly not today but i wonder even when he wrote it uh, whether there are actually any examples of any cartels functioning in this fan in this manner because you just you just can't plan what your organization is doing efficiently in, in in this manner you might be able to sort of keep going for for a while but i don't know i can't think of any 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 companies around that time who would who would work in this fun- in this manner
0: yeah it's, it's interesting you say that like because i remember like listen to some Chomsky lecture I think maybe talking about uh, the NAFTA deal and he was saying how like NAFTA they were saying that trade uh, expanded hugely after NAFTA but he was making the case that like some of the economists were looking at the stats and they think that the trade has actually dropped because people were now like building an engine in say Mexico and the, and they were building the chassis in say Florida when they would bring the chassis or the the engine over the border into Florida to put it into the car that would be booked as extra trade while previously it was just internal to the company in one country and that some of the trade that you're seeing is literally just counting for these flows across borders so yeah there's all manner of kind of stuff going on this stuff i had uh, Donald first and then will
5: yeah uh, i think those are really good points one of the the things i was thinking and just to come back to the kind of what we've been talking about Prior to this, I think a few weeks ago, we touched on like how you know the Soviets at the beginning kind of had the idea of kind of working in kind, and they hyperinflated their currency. And uh, yeah, just thinking in terms of, I guess, I mean, there is something to it. Like, it's not completely just, they weren't just totally mad. Like, the idea would have been that you have a kind of, every firm would have a certain kind of balance sheet where they could see what's coming in and out, and there'd be a kind of, like you say, like the kind of internal accounting that you might find in a company but uh like i mean i think later on with linear optimization and stuff like that there probably have been ways found to uh, rationalize that to some degree but yeah i just think it's i think it's correct that it doesn't that it's probably not possible but at the same time i think we shouldn't be maybe condemning them too harshly i don't know for for some of those kind of ideas that on paper you might think it was possible probably not in the 1920s okay but maybe uh, later on and i mean the soviets even called it material balances that was the that was the idea that they had i mean even if it didn't work
0: yeah i think a lot of excellent actual you know math and stuff
6: came out of this problem absolutely uh, will <clears throat> yeah in in terms of uh the the definition of in kind you, you know clearly they don't mean here to claim that these cartels don't calculate profit and loss, right? They're talking about capitalist cartels. So it's pretty clear that to me that they're thinking of things like, you know, big rail or oil trusts or things like that, that, you know, are super vertically integrated, right? Where they allocate, they figure out how much oil they need to mine and how much coal they need to mine to run the railroads and, you know, keep everything full. And, like that, I'm pretty sure that's what they're talking about, and it makes sense that they could do that without needing to, you know, record, you know, pay for the transfers within the firm. They could just say, "Oh, it takes this much iron ore to make a, another rail car," right?
0: Yeah, but I think the, you're you're they're saying a bit more than that though, as well, aren't they? Like they're saying that like the the entire problem of the calculation is gone. The 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 thing that helps firms calculate, you know efficiency under capitalism, you know, is profit and profit and loss. And so they're just making that case that we can just assume the internal operation of a firm to the entire society and that you can regulate that. You can under, you can even understand it and make mm-hmm. conscious decisions about it without a, you know, because like value under capitalism is pretty linked to a labor time measure so mm-hmm. that they could know what it is to say to increase your production uh, a certain amount in in human terms what's it what's actually possible, you know I think it's saying more than just that we know how many tons of steel it takes to do this, but it's like mm-hmm. it doesn't say anything about what are the human resources to do that. it's leaving out that whole
6: element uh, of uh buying the the labor
0: I don't know actually i, I well, you know, you don't even have to buy, uh, you know, I
6: suppose you, that's, that is a critique of buying the labor. Yeah. I suppose yeah that's you know, another. In, in, in all these things, they're buying the labor and money, right? They're, they're not buying it in labor tokens. Right. Yeah. Yeah. True. It's true. I like. I could imagine, you know, like whatever the Amazons of the world take over and they form a, you know, like, it's not hard to imagine, right? They form a general cartel. It's not communism or anything, but you could imagine them doing it and doing it relatively efficiently. Uh, today. Yeah, no, I mean, not then, yeah, but you you could see where they were going.
4: Herman. Yeah, but I think this is a critique of Mises, uh, which was formulated a few years later after uh, Hilferding has written his uh, Finance Capital. And the critique of Mises was that without a measure, a unit of measure, you, you cannot, you have no rationality in your planning. So even if you don't pay money within a, a big trust, but the accounting means that uh, if, if you do it in kind, then you cannot compare uh, substitutes. You can only compare them in, in different qualities, but not from the rationality of um, higher productivity. And, and this was also a critique of Mises, as with all this, without money or a measure, this is um, planning out of rationality, and and I think this this critique came after Rudolf Hilferding uh, wrote his Financial Capital book.
6: Uh, Will wants to speak. Yeah, uh, so definitely the, the the Mises critique would still apply in a lot of ways. I, I think you know in terms of the computational aspect, I, I think it's much more tractable now. But I, I think. Messi's point about gathering information, like you said, like about the relative productivity of like substitutes and things like that would still be somewhat of a blind spot because you would remove that mechanism that, that pushes people to go out of the way to, to find that information, right? You'd have to, to find a new replacement for that discovery. I think once you get the information, it is much more tractable now to find something optimal.
0: Yeah, so you you mean that like like it's it's possible to solve from a, a set of goods, it's possible to find a solution for that if you're given goods, but like only once you have that information to solve them.
6: Right. Like, uh, there's a bunch of things in, in capitalism that are like, you know, you know, it's easy to compare a bunch of cars, like brand new cars, right? Because we know exactly what in, went into them; they're a standard product, and, and it's easy to deal with. But then, like, okay, how do you Deal with like used cars, right? Like you have to individually value each one, and if you're not gonna like get a return on valuing it, like why, why not just scrap it, right? Like that kind of in between thing of where's the productive trade off, and how do I get the information to figure out what that that is? If there's no incentive for me to go do that, like take that risk and do that discovery, that's where you need like a replacement, you know? That that the big IO tables don't solve.
0: Right. Yeah. Any other points on this big element? Like, what do people think, make it the whole bit of, I feel like a major part of this, which sits so well into that social Democrat kind of thing, is that like, oh, capitalism will give us communism of itself. Just relax, lads. We don't need to, you know, organize ourselves in a revolutionary way. Uh, Slavic.
7: Yeah, it it actually kind of just reminds me of, I I think Derek Varn had mentioned this in a, different podcasts, but he talked about how the socialists who were in power in Germany because of this view favored, you know, supporting essentially big businesses because they want to make them ripe and, you know, hope that they would turn into communism, right? And so as a result, you also alienate a lot of like small business owners and the like who now have are, are kind of primed to you know, find appeals in uh national socialism and such or or in, in in uh Nazism. So it like has pretty pretty severe consequences if if you know you kind of put these firms on a high pedestal like that and prioritize them.
0: Yeah as far as I'm aware, I think the SPD also when they had power to follow policies of like Cracking down on wages and on the unions in in certain of these important industries, you know, which was not a particularly good look,
2: okay, where how far did we get to? we got to uh, we got to the end of the quote, so, okay,
0: do you want to take the next little bit?
2: Sure, when the Marxist economists had read this, they looked at each other very meaningful through their glasses. Yes, yes, Marx was right. The capitalism was digging its own grave and that a new society was born in the womb of the old. Any further trustification means another step towards the self-destruction of capital and how simple communism was. The working class only had to remove the obstacles of private ownership of the means of production that prevented the implementation of the general cartel in order to unite all economic life in one hand and thus create the communist system in which there would be no money, no market, no value, and no prices. The fact that it is still necessary to measure by each individual product how much work it embodies was obviously an error by Marx and Engels, which was probably connected with their simple line of thought about the association of free and equal producers. But in the end, they had to be forgiven for this because they lived in the, in the heyday of capital and had therefore not experienced the enormous formation of trusts and monopolies. Yes, nearer considered Marx's whole formulation that capitalism was digging its own grave was based on a misunderstanding because this grave digger work had a completely different meaning for Marx. At Marx, it digs its own grave because the capital that flows into the means of production is growing ever faster. At the same time, the number of workers who have to produce surplus value is constantly decreasing proportionally. Finally, this creates a point at which the profitability of capital becomes impossible so that the system collapses under terrible crises. There are then large operational factory complexes, but the workers are superfluous by the millions because capital does not yield a profit. For the disciples of Marx, digging the grave is much more comfortable. Here, Stinus is the greatest socialist and leads the organization of capitalism gradually into communism. We must refrain here from a value theoretical criticism of the general cartel, since this is not directly related to our topic. We only wanted to show How the general cartel was theoretically justified, how the generally accepted view of communism came about. We find a good critique based on the value theory in H Grossman, the law of accumulation and breakdown of the capitalist system. Following this theoretical foundation of communism, there would be no money, no market, no value, and no prices. The practical side was only a question of organization. It was the conversion of the apparatus to the needs of the people, a conversion that the leaders of production and distribution had to make. The state officials had to compile precise statistics on the needs, at which point the central management would ensure that the products were manufactured and distributed to the workers. Therefore, it was important how, where, how much, by what means will new products be made from the available natural and artificial production conditions. The communal district and national commissioners of socialist society decide overseeing social needs by all means of organized production and consumption statistics, consciously foreseeing the whole economic life according to the needs of their consciously represented and directed communities.
0: Okay, let's stop there. I have a question. I don't know if Herman might know, but was Grossman, I've read that Grossman book, was he actually theoretically a follower of this view? I'm kind of surprised to hear that. You know, Grossman's ideas was, you know, this kind of eventual the rate of profit is going down, 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 down. Eventually the system will collapse due to lack of profitability. Now, I know some people have a problem with that, like that Marx in volume three doesn't have a final collapse theory, which Grossman seems to be kind of putting forward, but kind of a
6: series of crises. Uh Will? It seems like he's, they're saying that we're not going to do a value theoretical criticism of the idea we just laid out of the general cartel. But if you want that, look to Grossman. I don't think they're saying he's espousing these views, but that he's a good critic of these views.
0: Yeah. So I must have a read of that book again. That's what I, that's what I was wondering. But I was just making sure. Because, you know, Grossman himself does have this idea of a final collapse kind of idea, which is not really Marx's, but it does kind of correspond to this paragraph up above which kind of threw me for a loop, just rereading again this week. Any other anybody want to talk about any other stuff, uh,
3: Alex? Yeah, just one point. I mean, probably wouldn't have been considered at, at the time, but Baron Swayze and Monopoly Capital make a, a good case that the tendency towards you know uh, cartels, in fact, increase the rate of profit because cartels, although they'll, they'll compete over market share, they tend not to compete on price, even if they don't have formal you know, price-fixing agreements. and sometimes they will. But uh, you know, they'll just informally uh, will price-fix and don't have the same kind of pressure that would have done when there was more competition in the, say, the, the late 19th century. So it's just another reason why I think this is wrong, although they might not, not have known it at the time.
0: Definitely, you know, uh, and also monopolies can increase the rate of profit. Like, if you've got a world monopoly on essentially some type of product you can increase the rate of pr- profit in your within your country at the expense of other countries so there's, there's that dynamic also you know we, we we see it in like how much of the american rate of profit is a beneficiary of say stuff like america owning essentially every social media platform except from TikTok?
3: No, no, Of course, and, and they can make super profits by just buying up anyone who might like to be a, be a competitor
0: Exactly, you know. Yeah, it's a it's a massive power.
2: Kielce. Sorry, can can anyone explain the paragraph I struggled with? I I, I simply don't understand it. Uh, the middle of page seventy five. The fact that it is still necessary to measure by each individual product how much work it embodies was obviously an error by Marx and Engels. I, I, what was it that Marx and Engels said that, that was in error at this? Okay, so there,
0: this is Jana Pell and the GIC talking in the you know in the voice of you know Hilferding. They're saying that. You know, Marx and Engels are obviously wrong. They're obviously dumb guys. They weren't around. They didn't see the big trusts like we see around here. Right. We're right. Marx and Engels were dumb asses.
2: Okay, I struggled a little bit with this whole entire section about like who 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 was being given voice to. Whether it was the yeah, old, the
0: this old, is old. the this is the this is the GIC there with their hand up, Hilferding's puppet, and talking in his voice like you know Marx's whole formulation was based on a mis- misunderstanding you know they're being sarcastic here in this section and if anybody is understanding stins here was like a you know it was a huge german industrialist so they're saying like stins is the greatest socialist you know how does this this kind of like reminds me of glenn greenwald huh? you know <laughs> saying you know uh steve bannon is a socialist although at least there was some theory behind this so i not just tomassery okay who wants to take the next section, the Russian Revolution? We're kind of flying through here today. Slavic.
7: The Russian Revolution has put an end to this beautiful dream. The factories were converted into common property. The Hilferding's general cartel was implemented in the state industry, but it did not abolish the movement laws of capital the Central Trust Administration must buy the labor force on the market at a price stipulated in the collective labor agreements with the state unions. The Russian Revolution made a thick line through the blessings of the general cartel and forced us to examine more closely the laws of movement of the communist economic world. C. The Bourgeois Criticism of the General Cartel The development of science which deals with the communist economy thus does not show a straight line. Still, from the working time calculation of Marx and Engels, it turns to the calculation in kind, to be brought back to its old course around 1920. It is certainly a bitter irony that the bourgeois economists in particular have made good progress in the science of communism, unless unintentionally. When it appeared that the downfall of capitalism had come within reach and communism seemed to conquer the world by storm, Max Weber and Ludwig Mises, is it Mises? began their criticism of the communism whereby, of course, first and foremost, Hilferding's general cartel, that is, Russian communism, had to suffer. Their criticism culminated in the demonstration that an economy is impossible without a method of accounting, without a general denominator to measure the value of the products. And they had it right. Great confusion in the Marxist camp. It was perfectly clear that the chaos of capitalist production was an orderly system compared to the production of goods without a unit of account. Only a small part of the Social Democrats held on to the old love Neurath, while the majority recognized the need for a general measure in economic life. Kautsky too was shocked, and now he had to deviate from his old method of ignoring something with the pretext and take a stand. That's what he does. The value is now suddenly no longer a historical category because the settlement. Will take place based on money, since it is indispensable as a measure of value for bookkeeping and the calculation of exchange ratios in a socialist society, and also as a means of circulation. What money will look like in the second phase of communism is an open question for him, for we do not even know whether it will ever be more than a pious wish, similar to the millennial kingdom. Weber and Mises had won the battle, communism was defeated, but now they still had to deal with Marx and Engels, because they had never participated in the stupidity of production without a unit of account, but had set the working time as a measure. They did this so thoroughly that Bloch in his die Marxie...
0: Die Marxische Geldtheorie.
7: Okay page 125, considered it unnecessary to go into the details of the working time calculation. In fact, no part of the working time calculation remained intact, but only because they understood so much, or rather so little, about this matter as Kautsky did. Nothing at all. The first fruit of Weber's criticism was outstanding work of Otto Liechner.
0: Yeah, Otto liked her. Otto yeah. liked her. You don't need to put the next one. Die Wirtschaftsrechnung Wirtschaft <laughs> Wirtschaft in der Sozialistischen Gesellschaft, Vienna, 1923. There Thank you,
7: Tom. I appreciate that.
0: <laughs> I, did a, I butchered it too. Don't worry.
7: <laughs> because he based production on the working time accounting, communism made a great leap forward here. He wants to place production in the hands of the producers. But because he cannot or does not want to implement the category of socially average production time, the matter nevertheless leads to state capitalism. We also learn from his writing that he was not the first to base production on working time accounting. This way of thinking was not only developed by Marx, but around 1900, also by Maurice Bourquin whose thoughts, according to Leitner's uh, explanation, almost exactly match his own. Besides several people making working time play an important role in production, but since none of them includes the means of production in their calculations, they lead nowhere. Also, the explanation of Varga in Kommunismus, second year number 910, suffers from this lack. Therefore, this also does not have to be considered without further investigation.
3: So
0: there's quite a lot of uh, shade being thrown around here, particularly on Tchaikovsky, a man who turned around and was shocked, shocked, I tell you, about the critique of von Mises and Weber. So shocked that he returns money, says it's in, it's an indispensable, as a, as, let me read this bit here, Its value is is now suddenly no longer a historical category because the settlement will take place based on money, since it is indispensable as a measure of value for bookkeeping and the calculation of exchange ratios in a socialist society, and also as a means of circulation. So the critiques here, I've managed to make them do a, a full 180 about what they thought communism was, that suddenly... We're going to have money around still. You know, we're going to have exchange. We're going to have money circulating. So we have so many of the actual parts of the capitalist value form reappearing here that all of a sudden have reappeared out of the ether. Anybody have any
3: shade to throw here? Alex? I'm wondering, did these guys like skip those like really tough first three chapters of capital? Because like calculation of exchange ratios is pretty much what that's about.
0: It makes you wonder. But, you know, I think there are some quotes in some letters from Marx to Engels, I think, where somebody can correct me on this, but I think where Marx calls Kautsky a complete dullard or something as well that he didn't rate him at all. But it it seems, it it, it is amazing how, you know, the process of, you know, capitalism working through this revolutionary movement and turning it, uh, and its major theorists turning it back towards something that is capitalist to me it's kind of you know it's the superstructure working its its magic <laughs> slavic
7: yeah could you again just clarify in that last paragraph what is meant by that none of those theories none of them includes the means of production i just want to make sure so they're just focusing on distribution is is what they're what they're saying
0: so i think they had problems we're going to get to the equations in i think chapter 6 the next chapter is he's taken on the libertarian communist. So in chapter six, I think he's going to, or no, maybe chapter seven, yeah, where he lays out the actual equations. But I think you see that the equations were going to be deal with in, in, in my copy here anyway. It's P plus C plus L. And it's the fact that I think that they were looking at the L component and, and leaving out the P and the C and not theorizing that part. So they weren't including the means of production as being measured in labor time, but the wages, and so they were falling into theoretical kind of problems. I'd say that uh, Herman can clear that up if I'm wrong. Does that make sense?
4: Yes, I think this is exactly what they what they what they said.
0: So, like that's the beauty of these kind of foundational the equivalents of Marx's C plus V plus S. You know the P plus C plus L. OK, any other questions or, or comments on this stuff about Kautsky and how they they turned 180 on in their theoretical stuff? Uh, Alan,
7: uh, I thought it was an interesting point that basically all the all of the actual questions when you when you pull a Kautsky like this, all of the real questions of how to implement socialism can be conveniently pushed back to the higher phase. And who knows if that's ever coming? I think that's politically very relevant. A- exactly.
0: Like uh, I, I look at the the theories that are coming here much through the politics. The critiques of Weber and Mises are the the most coherent critiques. You know, I I have respect for their critiques because they're correct, even if they're coming out of the politics. But the 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 shift into the shift into the Hilferding and then further on into Kautsky's approach, you know, I I I I find that you know just. A function of the politics and not of the intellectual ideas. It's probably why I, I I have nearly more more bad things to say about Kowski than I do about Weber. Okay, well, we take at the last section. Who would like to? Unless there's anybody else want to read. Uh, I I sure must really be terrible to be German and listen to us listen to us butchering all these ver- uh, names. Patrick,
8: the progress. However. Progress in the formulation of the problem is revealed not only from the economic side, but also from the political side. The revolutionary proletariat has already pointed out the production apparatus can be social property while it continues to function as an apparatus of domination and exploitation. Thus, the Russian revolution has posed problems from the political side we now demand guarantees that we will retain the right to decide on the means of production. That is why we are now calling for generally applied rules on how producers themselves manage and administer production with precise controls to ensure that these rules are actually applied. The type of syndicalism that seeks free disposal of operation must therefore be seriously combated. In addition to the guarantees for maintaining the right of disposal over the production apparatus, we are now also demanding guarantees that exploitation will be abolished. These guarantees cannot lie in democracy in influencing the leading instances on the pathway of elections for all kinds of councils. We demand that this guarantee over objective course of the production distribution apparatus, which goes beyond every democracy. We demand that an exact relationship between the producer and social product as a whole. The basis for these guarantees lies in the fact that it is necessary for society to know how much labor each article of consumption requires for its production. That is its production time. And so we have come to a very clear objective for our further research. We must examine how the category of the socially average production time is developed in the communist economy. Our paper will continue to to be dedicated to this topic. So we are by no, no means constructing a vision of the future. We are not inventing a communist system. We only examine the conditions under which the central category, the average working hour in society can be introduced. If this is not possible, then the exact relationship of producer to the total product can no longer be maintained. Then the distribution is is no longer determined by the objective course of the production apparatus. Then we get a distribution by persons to persons. Then producers and consumers can no longer determine the course of the operational life. But then this is shifted to the, the dictatorial powers of the essential organs. When the state enters the operational life with democracy, then state capitalism is is inevitable.
0: Okay, so there is a lot in this section. The Russian Revolution posed the problems from the political side. So we're going to demand guarantees that will retain the right to decide on on the means of production. That is why we are now calling for generally applied rules and how producers manage and administer production with precise controls to ensure that these rules are actually applied. Now, one thing that we were discussing earlier when we were talking about, say, the cartel, and we're saying about how today, you know, the Russians did develop mathematics, even if they never ended up using them. I don't think on how you can solve these kind of material balances, the physical, uh, like a physical quantities approach. But one thing that that obscures, which is very. What I find really obscurantist about that approach, you know, you have some algorithm here and you put in all your inputs and outputs and you have these things going and they say, oh, do this, that and the other, and then we'll have what we want, our final basket of products. And it's, it obfuscates what's going on. And the beauty of the general rules that we're going to get onto in the next, in, in chapter six, that it lays out exactly clear so that everybody can understand what's going on in society. At every single point of production, everybody can understand the basic what's going on, and everybody can understand their tax system. They can understand all of this stuff based on average production time and labor time accounting for the means of production and the output and labor. So it it, it just that's a, a very important point I think to make that gets lost when we get into some of this stuff about all oh, well, we can we can solve it with this new algorithm or that new algorithm. And that gets away from this idea that the whole thing is transparent and everybody can understand what's going on. And it's not just some foreign AI in the sky trying to decide what we should do. We're also seeing in this bit here where we're going to get to this critique of syndicalism, which comes in the next chapter. Now I know like we've been, they've been hammering on the Bolsheviks for now for the last three, well, not too much this chapter and the chapters before, but, uh, It's a good reason why they're doing that as well. If you think about the time in which these were written, and the twenty-three for first edition or thirty here, I think or thirty-five, you know, the anarchist left hadn't actually, you know, say the Spanish Revolution hadn't really gotten going yet. So the, the main kind of target for for their criticism was the Soviet Union at the time. Anybody here want to get into have any comments on this, Alex?
3: Uh, I don't get your earlier point. I mean, I get that it's simpler but when everything's done in, in terms of like working hours, when like companies just communicate the amount of working hours that they add to each step of the process. That doesn't simplify the, the problem of optima optimization, though, which is what what that math is, is, is about.
0: That, I think that math is more about optimization. To be honest with you, it's about control and maybe optimization. You know. So,
3: well, what maths are you referring to then?
0: Just like, and just in general, like talking about like
3: what capitalists, for
0: example, talk about the beauty of the market as it's been an optimization thing that is decentralized, and communists, what do they tend to talk about? They talk about the beauty of the efficient algorithm which will solve our problem. They can both can't be right. So, like if we're looking at what is the dynamism of capitalism, it's probably largely to do with decentralization. And there is no reason why you can't have decentralized, a similar form of decentralized social system. That if if you had a centrally planned approach towards production, say, in the UK here, we're sitting here today about, you know, the chippers. Okay. And, and what, what basis is it efficient for the central planners to say where I'm going to get my uh, chicken wings and chips? You know, I think that a huge amount of the uh, efficiency in capitalism is how it solves these problems decentrally. So, if you were to get towards a system where it's all in this input-output input, output tables, whatever, whatever, that there's there's more than just efficiency in there. There's also control over exactly what is done.
3: I've lost what your point was.
0: Sorry. <laughs> Maybe it led it better. Let's see. Let's bring on. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, no. I just uh, I wanted to zone in on the uh, relationship between the individual producer and the general product because I think this is the the clarifying genius of this system is that it makes by using the single measure of labor time for both production and consumption you make you make immediately transparent the way in which basically that consumption and production impose mutual limits on each other. Thereby, you know, in the opacity of the capitalist system, each individual consumer and each individual producer has no way of knowing whether they are overproducing or overconsuming other than through this medium of of money with its inherent volatility obscures that relationship between consumption and production. I don't know if I'm making any
0: sense. I think it's true. It's like... So that's again towards the point that I wasn't making clearly before for Alex. It's like, I work eight hours a day. You can see the products, the value of your labor is represented exactly in these products. I know what I, I've done and then I know how much I can consume. As a direct, you know, that the, the link is there succinctly between those two. It's not an algorithm in the sky saying you are now entitled to you know, forty-five percent of what you've produced or eighty-seven percent are produced, or telling you you have to go to work and work this amount of hours. That you have this direct link between your what what you work, what you get home, there is no exploitation, it's straight there. The workers at the point of production control it, and society agrees a plan. I think it's fundamentally different than production units sending information up into the sky. For the algorithm to, or the whatever, the planners to say, we want these kind of outputs. We're going to order you down below to do all this kind of stuff. Anybody else want to say anything here? I I'm not being coherent today. I don't know what's wrong with me. It must be pain fumes, Slavic dreams, and then Alex.
7: So, just to clarify so, when he says objective course of production, he's basically saying objective as in the case that you have labor time accounting for your production, correct? Or is, he, um, or is something else meant by objective course of production
0: yeah I think he's saying there that like your 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 consumption is directly linked to your production okay and if your production and your consumption aren't directly linked through labor time you know through the actual objective course of production you know then you get you will end up with a distribution by one person deciding what you get as opposed to I do this amount of work, I get that amount of output because that's the amount of output I've just done, if that makes sense. Yes. Alex?
3: <clears throat> yeah, I wish this book had started by stressing the use of labour time as a use of account for production. So I think for consumption, it really doesn't matter. Your money is, you know, you can easily do the transformation from labour time to, to money and can work out what the average wage is and can work out what government spending is and other than lying and st- sticking money in like tax havens, I can work out what, what average profits are. These are all publicly uh, available numbers. I can see the degree of exploitation or the, you, the, the amount that, you know, uh, of excess hours that are work, were worked on average. You don't need tokens marked labor time for that. But production using labor time, I think that, that's a, a, an interesting idea, I think. And that's, I think, is the important part.
0: Well, that's the unity, Alex. That's what we're getting to. You know what I mean? Yes. Like, like
3: Like you know, exactly, hey, yeah, my criticism is: I wish it, I wish that had been stressed before because early on it was like you know, stressing that you know, in terms of it was important that consumption be uh, accounted for in hours labour time, and anything else leads to you know state capitalism. I think that's just wrong. I think the important bit is the production part. Well, like I think
0: they're saying that's the reason why the book is production and distribution. Now, maybe it came across more they're talking about consumption, but it's the link. It's the organic whole. But definitely, like, today, you know, it's very difficult. You know, you're saying that somebody could actually go, somebody can find out, you know, the rate of exploitation, blah, blah, blah. And you technically can do it, but it's obscured. You know, it's the brilliance of the capitalist system. But definitely, we're going to get more and more yeah. into the weeds with it. But it's like that unity between production and, and distribution. Mm-hmm. And, like, it, it, it doesn't allow any third element to to implicate itself or to insert itself between the workers and their product that's that's the beauty donal
5: yeah i agree with that and just the i think it's just uh it again brings home the kind of fundamental difference in terms of accounting what's going on like if if you have a money economy like within capitalism as Marx talked about like the the main idea of, or the one of the main functionalities of money, let's say, and we talked about this another week, I know, is, you know, to be able to say that kind of, uh, you know, MCM prime, the, the, the idea of that the exploitation happens in the production process, and then it's kind of realized on the market. And whereas, you know, and that's a fundamental role of money, like in capitalism, no matter what brand of capitalism, whereas in the in this kind of labor time accounting the only the only work that your labor vouchers are doing or labor tokens or whatever is to just keep a track of what the costs are you know so so that once consumption is congruent with the with the integrated labor costs then uh you know the system balances like and i think that's uh, yeah it's a really nice and simple and kind of beautiful system so but I think it's important to, to kind of get that distinction as to, like, why vouchers? Why not just keep money? Like, would that not be the same thing? But, yeah, so it's it's fundamentally different. I think.
1: What really strikes me about this is the importance of knowing the impact that your own personal consumption has in terms of implying necessity of a certain amount of labour to be performed. I think when it comes to exerting democratic control over production. I think the transparency basically makes it clear to everybody that instead of instead of everything being oriented towards a continual production of more goods, uh, which in capital society we tend to consume in order to compensate for how stressed we are and for how little time we have, I think that if you have this very simple balance sheet between products created and hours of labour performed, then you, you're in a position to make a free decision as to, you know, in agreement with with your coworkers, uh, what kind of trade-off you're willing to make for more hours free time as opposed to less consumable goods. So yeah, I think that's that's what I really like about it.
0: Absolutely, Slavic.
7: I- I'm just excited to be that guy at parties that can, you know, at the end of this book talk about, oh, how would we actually implement it? <laughs> cuz i think so much of the thing is like oh sounds nice in theory but you know how do you guys actually get plan on organizing such a society and i think this obviously this is an issue that's been you know in the early 20th century there was plenty of back and forth as we saw with kautsky there on just like not really acknowledging this theoretical issues and so i'm just Looking forward to the end of the book and uh being able to you know understand these arguments in full,
0: yeah, I know it's going to be amazing. You go to parties, everybody be you know hanging on our every words. it's going to be brilliant i'm I'm going to be out outside my house everybody's going to be there's gonna be crowds listening to me. I can't wait <laughs> I like that image. I'm more akin now, and getting more and more close to that is what Woody Allen said in one of his films, you know the crazy. Guy with a beard, you know, just screaming about socialism, pushing a trolley through the park. That's 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 what I'm getting towards, particularly with the lockdown. I haven't managed to cut my hair in about a year and a half. So it's gone completely wild. Okay, so next week we're going to do Chapter five, the libertarian communism. So he's going to basically have a go at the kind of left com slash anarchists for their uh, lack of theoretical clarity around these issues. So we've, we've given up Bolshevik bashing. Now we're going to start hitting on the old, uh, left cons and anarchists. Okay. So I'll see you all next week. Thanks for coming. On this episode, you heard the theme tune The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters and Night of the Purple Moon by Sun Ra and his orchestra. Thank you for listening and please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. This show is a member of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast and research collective. Make sure to check out our Network Sister Podcasts, General Intellect Unit, jumpsuit utopia mortal science and swampside chats and if you'd like to help out the show please remember to head over to patreon and throw me a few commie dollar